Well, this morning we're going to close off the series by looking into the New Testament and we're going to look at Matthew 12, verse 42. That's going to be our text. That's our background for what we're doing. The title is A Great One Greater Than Solomon. And so let's read this verse, Matthew 12 and verse 42. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment. of This is Jesus speaking. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus makes this very strong statement. He says Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. And actually, the Queen of the South, an example of many others, came miles to listen to him, to try and learn some of the wisdom that we've got in the book of Proverbs. But actually, now, something greater than Solomon is here. Some translations say, a greater than Solomon is here. And Leon Morris says the phrase that Jesus uses that's translated in these different ways and I think this is a good point, seems to stand for all that is involved in the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the kingdom of God. This, Jesus coming and inaugurating the kingdom, is an action of God far mightier than anything he had done in Solomon. Basically, Jesus is saying, I arriving, me and what I'm bringing and doing and the kingdom I will bring in is of a far greater magnitude and scale than anything Solomon did much greater. Now that was a pretty controversial thing to say. It was an outlandish thing to say to the Jews who were the first uh, audience for those words because Solomon was the wisest and richest king that the Israelites had ever had. And actually when he reigned, it was the high spot of Israel's history up to that point. He actually reigned over probably a bigger territory than anybody else, probably slightly bigger than his father David, more area. He was certainly wealthier and more uh, highly regarded than his father in terms of highly regarded by other nations, as we've seen Queen of the South and others came to visit him. And it was looked back upon as a golden age. So how on earth could Jesus say, a greater than Solomon is here, something greater than Solomon? What did he mean? Well, actually, Jesus was talking about something profound, exciting, and relevant to you and me. That's what's really exciting. Now, I'm not saying Solomon hasn't relevance because we've been reading from Proverbs, but it is a bit ancient history and it's another era. But what Jesus is talking about is about what we can be in as well, the kingdom of God and all that Jesus has brought. And we need to really dig into that over the next half hour. Now, to do that, we probably ought to make a final little attention to Solomon and just think about Solomon who wrote most of the book of Proverbs. A bit of history. Solomon reigned from 970 to 930 BC. He reigned for 40 years over Israel. And during the first half of his reign, he really did live well. He lived as God intended. In 1 Kings 3, if you choose to look at it, at the beginning of his reign, he uh, was given a, a prophetic insight from God about what was going to happen. And God said, you can ask me, For anything, and I will give it to you to help you be a good king. And Solomon asked for wisdom. 
It was a great ask. He said, I want wisdom so that I can rule your people well. And God said, well done. That is the best thing to ask for. You can have everything else as well, the wealth and fame, but you're going to definitely have the wisdom. So it was a, a really good start. And then later in the same chapter, we see some of that wisdom operating as he brings a very wise and sort of humane, insightful judgment to two prostitutes, two very unimportant women really, fighting over a baby and there's a whole little story in there but it's renowned as an example of wise, humane judgment that Solomon brought. And then as we get to 1 Kings 4 you find all the nations beginning to come to him like uh, the Queen of Sheba but others too and it talks about wise uh, people of of the time who Solomon is wiser than. So, I mean, it would have meant something more than it does to us, but, you know, he was wiser than this one and that one. It's like choosing the most top brains of the time and saying he, he, he was far wiser. We're told he wrote 3,000 proverbs. We haven't got them all in our book. 3,000. He wrote over 1,000 songs. He catalogued plant life and animal life. He was a very clever and wise man. In 1 Kings 5 and 6, we have him building the temple. It's a magnificent building, built on the plan of his father David. David never got to build it, but Solomon built it. And it was a magnificent building in which the true and living God could be worshipped and his presence known. And by 1 Kings 8, as Solomon leads the people in a dedication of the temple, as there's prayers, as there's sacrifices, there is this incredible moment when the presence of God turns up. And the presence of God is thick over the temple. And people can't even stand, the priests can't even serve, because the presence of God, I mean, what a moment in history. How wonderful. People can't even get in the temple. It's just all over it. God's all over it. And it's in that period that we're talking about, which is really his first 20 years, in that period he collected together some of the Proverbs, most of them are written by him. Some of them are from elsewhere. He collected together the book of Proverbs, edited it, brought it together, and wrote it down deliberately for future generations. We've benefited ourselves. Now, he would have been led by the Holy Spirit to do that, just like when Paul wrote some of his letters. There was a now occasion for what they did. Paul was writing to the Corinthians for a reason. But the Holy Spirit was on him and there was something more deep in it. It was something that would come through the ages, an authority and an insight into God. It's the same for Solomon. He collected together, he didn't use all 3,000. He collected together the ones he felt were the most important. He brought in one or two from other people, a few scores from other people. And he brought together what we have as Proverbs. And he was inspired. He was one of the inspired writers of the Bible. He was one of those. He wasn't inspired all the time, but when he wrote that, he was inspired. So he's up there with Paul and and other other people, Isaiah. He was one of the ones used in writing the Bible. Now, if we were to stop there, that would be an incredible CV. But sadly, the story really doesn't end like that. In the second half of Solomon's reign, here's the big deal. He failed to practice what he preached. He just failed to do. He did not apply his own basic wisdom to his own life. This wealthy, wise king who had followed God through his 20s and 30s, when he got into his 40s and 50s, be careful, he went off the boil spiritually and progressively drifted away from God. So in 1 Kings 10, 
we can get a taste. We're not going to put this one on the screen. It's not on the PowerPoint. Get a taste of one area, briefly. He really got into his money and his wealth and everything had come to him. Now, that can happen to all of us, particularly in those years, as you establish yourself and the salary's gone up and the mortgage is less of a burden. Well, it was in another order for Solomon. Just listen to this. Then the king made a great throne. The king made a great throne. This is for himself. Covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. This, this is written in a sort of neutral way, but you can read behind it what was going on. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests and a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three three years, the trading ships returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, and baboons. How many apes and baboons do you need? It's not food for the people, is it? No, apes and baboons. Just luxurious, unnecessary extras all the time. One more verse. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Do you need that many chariots? I think they might have been like Ferraris in his day, but or maybe even a bit more, like jets. But, you know, there may have been military reasons, but I think this was over the top. This was OTT. And it was all about stuff that was for him. Now, sadly, if you read carefully, he spent longer building his own palace than he did the temple. And you can get a message just in that fact itself. 1 Kings 11 tells us that he married many foreign Women. They were princesses. They were often uh, heirs to the throne of other nations. But the big thing wasn't that they were foreign alone. They came from other religions. They were worshippers of pagan idols. And they were allowed to continue their worship. He ended up with 700 wives in his harem. So much for all the wonderful stuff about marriage and the godly wife. In 1 Kings 11... We find that he, had ex- he gave in to excessive sensuality because on top of his 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. Now, concubines are like official mistresses. They aren't legally wives, but they're there for the use of the king sexually. So he was totally giving in to his, uh, himself and his lusts. Again, so much for the wonderful stuff about your own fountain, don't stray in the way of the seductress and the adulteress. All the wonderful exhortations his younger self had written for other men to take heed of. And in 1 Kings 11, he sanctioned idolatry on a big scale. And these wives and concubines, particularly the wives, were allowed to worship their false gods. He built temples for their false gods, and he let them get on with it. And in fact, he joined them sometimes. So much for The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And sadly and finally, and this is sad as well, in 1 Kings 12 you pick up that he began to oppress and exploit his people. You think he would have had enough money and resources, but oh no, 
He got more draconian with his laws, more of a semi-slave labor was used for building things. And we see him so harsh that when he dies, this magnificent reign finishes, the people are relieved to see him go. You read the end of the story, they're pleased he went. And they come to his son Rehoboam and they say, are you going to make things a bit easier than he did? And they say, will you please ease, and this is a quote, the harsh labor and heavy yoke your father put on us. What a shame when you've got all those resources, all this wonderful stuff, you can leave posterity, you die and the people say, thank God he's gone. Are you going to ease up? It's been harsh, it's been heavy. He's wanted more and more out of us. Again, sadly, so much for the great advice about being a a godly ruler, just and fair ruler, treating people well, being uh, uh, not greedy, all the stuff we looked at. He wasn't putting it into practice. Solomon shipwrecked his life, shipwrecked his reign, shipwrecked his country. It split in two afterwards. He had great wisdom, great ideas, given from God, Holy Spirit-inspired, but he didn't live by them. He made foolish choices, not wise choices. He talks about fool, folly, and, and wisdom, and he, he personified them, if you remember, in our early chapters. And instead of following the beautiful wisdom, he followed the seductress folly. And that led down a dangerous and ultimately destructive path for him and his nation. It is a sober warning. And 1 Kings 11 gives us a little taste of what was going wrong. Just a couple of verses, if you put them up, please. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Thank you. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. It was not fully devoted to the Lord. He had a heart problem, a very serious one. And that also is poignant because he was the one who said, guard your heart. We read it. For out of it is the wellspring of life. He is the one who said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He had these good intentions. He knew how to live well, but he had a fatal flaw in his heart. Now, this fundamental flaw is there in all our hearts, as we are naturally. Let's look at this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. This is general, generic, if you like. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, that's God's perspective on human, the human dilemma. Because in the Bible, our heart doesn't mean the blood pump. Not really. The thing that we know biologically is the heart. It's the inner core of who you are. It's what drives you. It's where you make your choices. It's your will, your emotion, your mind. It's the real you. The inner real you. What ultimately comes out in what you say and do. And the sad thing is, if we use modern terminology... It's like there is a virus in the software of our hearts. The the hardware is wonderful. God's given us many things, consciences, uh, ability to know him, uh, ability. We We are far different from the animal kingdom. And yet in that wonderful mechanism, there is a virus. 
And the Bible calls it sin. It's a tendency towards selfishness. It's a tendency towards unbelief. It's a tendency to not want God, though there's a tension between feeling the loss of him. It's a tendency towards lust. It's a tendency towards envy, jealousy, greed, anger, hatred. These things are there. It's like they, they, they are a kink in the system. They're, a, they're, they're something that spoil many things. It's subtle often. Now, it's not always subtle. Sometimes sin is very dramatic and obvious. But generally speaking, it's a gradual complication. Like you sometimes get your computer a bit choked up with stuff. It doesn't always just crash instantly. It's sometimes it's like it, the sin gradually clouds and gradually chokes up. And that's probably what we could say happened to Solomon. It says rather sadly in verse 4 of chapter 11 of Kings, as Solomon grew old, it got worse basically. As he grew old, much of the fruit of these poor decisions came out. The compromises accumulated. The permissiveness, the indulgence he'd allowed himself, his lusts and his greed, began to fruit, and they weren't nice fruit. And it began to be a sour fruit. This is the sin problem. And it, the, the big lesson, and you need to hear it this morning, is that sin is not solved by good intentions. You can know the right thing to do and fail to do it. And our culture is full of it. In fact, it's easily recognisable. Lots of non-Christian thinkers have recognised it. Dr Johnson in the 18th century always wrote very wise things. He said, the trouble with laws is, is that there is not enough virtue in people to keep them. That's right. Common sense, really. And a lot of people, if you ask them, would say, well, yes, I understand it would be best for uh, you know, one man and one woman to get together, be committed to each other for life, love only each other, have only sex with each other, produce their own children, look after those children right through till the children were adulthood. That, I get that. But then, even though I get that, vast hordes of people don't manage to live by it. Now, there'll be all sorts of excuses and reasons, but the reality is we find a huge gap between what we often realise is the right and best way to live, and we could take lots of other areas, I just took one, but, you, but, but, but actually the gap between that and what we do seems sometimes enormous. Now this is something the Bible is very clear about. Let's go to the New Testament and look at what Paul wrote, which I, many people think was rooted in his own experience originally. It's Romans 7. It's going to go up on the screen, and it's a selection of verses from Romans 7, 2 or 3. For I know, Paul says, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, actually, we try to excuse it away, particularly in our modern world. We try and excuse away bad behaviour, but we really do struggle to excuse it away. Even, even we know this is a weak argument sometimes. But this is a more honest reflection of many people's feeling. Is look, I know the good stuff I should do. I sort of know I should love my neighbour. I know I should be faithful to my wife. No, I shouldn't lie, shouldn't be greedy, shouldn't watch pornography. I know, I, sh- I know it, I do, but I find I can't do it. I, I, I find I have a desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. It's like a law's at work in me. I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. Now, that experience, which is the experience of a well-intentioned person, that's what I would 
argue that Paul is there. Perhaps it was how he was before he's a Christian. Some people say it might have been after he's a Christian. I think if you read it carefully with the chapters around it, it is a more generic example of how a good-intentioned law-keeping or trying-to-be-law-keeping person tussles. They could be in any situation. If they're looking to get better by keeping law, this is how they feel. So if you get Proverbs and say, this is brilliant, which it is, I am going to try and live by it by my own effort, you will probably end up feeling like this. This is about a well-intentioned person. Maybe Solomon himself would say a sad amen to it. That I saw and I knew what was the good thing to do, but I found I couldn't. I found there was so much money I could make and so many, I could get people to do anything I liked for me. I got as many women as I wanted and everybody thought I was wonderful and nobody questioned me. And so it was so hard not to just go with it and enjoy it all. And my word, I like these gold goblets. I wonder if we could have another set and they could be even bigger and even brighter and perhaps put some sapphires around them. That would be rather pretty. You know, aren't you pleased with your own gold goblets? Well, no, I'd like bigger ones. With, you know, I mean, that's what happens. What's the matter with you, Solomon? How about feeding some of the poor people out there who are slaving for you? And, and No, no, this is part of my glory and the glory of Israel. Now, you can excuse it. And he knew, he would have agreed with this. What a wretched man I am. I can't do what I know is the right way to do, the right way to live. And it's this point that we need the greater than Solomon. Paul's cry of despair, what a wretched man that I am, is immediately followed by a cry of hope and victory, which I will read to you. I don't think we've got it on the screen. It's later in verse 25 of Romans 7. He says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why I don't think he's writing about his general Christian experience. It's about the battle with law. It's all about the battle with law. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. A greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus has come not only to teach us great teachings and wise words, and they are very wise words. Sermon on the Mount, they're, they're far more powerful, some of them, than Solomon. Some of them are very similar to the wisdom of Solomon. We notice that in the preaching, they're rather similar. But Jesus came to do far more. He came to bring an answer to our heart problem. That's the big difference, and it's substantially different. He came. And Jesus lived very different. As I was just thinking about this this morning in the prayer meeting here, I, th- I just felt God spoke to me in my heart how differently Jesus lived to Solomon. Solomon had everything going for him. He knew what to do. He had wisdom from God. He had the presence of God in the temple where nobody could move with a glory came down. Jesus was despised and rejected. He was a poor man He lived as an ordinary man. He was often abused verbally. Ultimately, he was physically abused and crucified. He went through some tough stuff. His friends, he was not with gold goblets. He didn't have 700 wives. He was single, and he would have been celibate. So he he had a very, very different lifestyle. What a magnificent change. There's someone greater than Solomon at that level alone. But he came to do far more than teach us He came to solve the fundamental problem. He is able to do something about your and my heart problem. 
And it's all captured in the verses. They're quite complicated, but they're worth reading. The verses that come immediately after what I've read. At the end of Romans 7, we go into Romans 8. And the first four verses are these. We're going to put them up. I'm going to read them to you. This is what comes right after. What on earth can I do? How can I, you know, I know what to do. I can't do it. Here we go. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. That means you can have all the good intentions in the world, but the weakness is in you. The law is perfect. It's really sensible and wise. Problem is the weakness of the flesh. What the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was a man to be a sin offering. And he condemned sin in the flesh, in ours, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the righteousness that God was looking for, would be fully met in us, who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, or even if you are, and you haven't been reading it recently, you're probably going, oh, I can't quite follow all that, so I'm going to help you. Because that is absolutely magnificent, and many of you will know that. But I just need to take a moment or two briefly to unpack it for you, because this is why a greater than Solomon has come. This is the gospel. What we've just read is the good news, and it's far better news than Solomon can bring you. If you put faith in Jesus Christ, in all he has done, who he was, his death and resurrection then you can sit in the position these verses are talking about. This is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you get in Christ Jesus, not through your effort, but through all he's done, and you simply trust in him. You put faith in him and ask him into your life, say, I want to follow you, then you are in Christ Jesus. And that is glorious, and that gives you the context for the verses. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Now, what's that mean? Well, all the things you've done wrong, all the failure to live up to what God said, all the feeling that I'm useless, God will forgive it all. It's cleansed. This is the first act. This isn't the whole deal. There's much, much better, much more. But at least it's the beginning of the the groundwork. God removes all your sin. It's, It's cleansed away. As far as the east is from the west, you are washed clean from all your failure and sin. All the things you wish you'd have done that you can't do, the things that you've done you wish you hadn't done, and all the rest of it, all the words you spoke you shouldn't have spoken, the things you didn't say you should have said, it's all removed by the blood of Jesus. Washed clean. All our sins and failures, our failures to live well. Jesus bore them in his body on the cross. And you are sprinkled clean. You're given a clean slate. But it is more than that. Because as you come into Christ, you are, in the Bible terms, another verse, born again of the Holy Spirit. That's not the phrase used here, but the principle is there. You are born of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives you life. The Holy Spirit comes into you. And he changes something on the inside. In in, in actual fact, you get a new heart and a new spirit. You are changed. 
somebody begins to put the software right. Oh, hallelujah. The Holy Spirit comes in and you get born again from the inside. Born from above. Now, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. You must be born again. He said it in John 3. And uh, Nicodemus struggled with it. But Jesus was saying something very profound. In my kingdom that I'm bringing, that's greater than Solomon, you get into it by a new birth. You are born again. And then you can come in. You don't come in by earning it. You don't come in by work. How many of you here worked hard yourself to get born the first time in life? All down to you. Well done. You made a real effort. Did you, you, you didn't have a party. Unless you don't know, we can have a little talk afterwards. But you, you did not have any part in your conception. Sorry if I've spoiled it. There were no stalks involved or anything. You didn't have any part in your conception. And you had no control or uh, work in the birth process. You didn't say, well, I, we had a, my mother had a really easy time. I made sure that I was a really easy one to be born. I just got it right. I lined my head up the right time gave a little call, pulled the plug, yeah, go for it now, I'm ready. You, you, now, your new birth is the same. It's not down to you. You might, oh God, you, you, you responded in some way to your eyes being opened. Maybe they're out now. Hope they are. Today. <laughs> you say, oh, it's the truth. Oh, Jesus saved me. But the birth is not, it's not your merit, is it? It's a birth, for goodness sake. You're born from above by the Holy Spirit. Look, I really sorted this out. I, yeah, I got born well. No, no, but actually, it's not you. You're born from above. It says it's not by the will of man. It's a work of the Spirit. You're the Father in heaven, a work of God's Spirit. And that birth means you have in you something of God's DNA. The Holy Spirit is there, and he's working on you. You've been saved, which is swipping over. So you do get saved. It's real you, but you that's being changed. A new creation you, a ch- being changed you. And one of the things he's doing is teaching you to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, which is really what it says here when it says the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. It's not really meaning keeping the Old Testament law. It's meaning what God's really after. And it's sort of what's in Proverbs, really, as well. What is living well? What is a godly person? What is a woman of substance? What is it we've been looking at? It comes through walking in the Spirit. It's actually the outworking of what God's worked in you. And, of course, we now can use Proverbs as a guide and a help, as we've been doing, I hope, quite fruitfully. But actually, the process is not about, oh, gosh, I must try and keep all these. It's actually about the Holy Spirit saying, let's get hold of that one and work on it. That's why I talked about freedom in Christ. It may be for some of you there's just one that the Holy Spirit said, I'd, I'd like you to, to do a little more work on your attitude to your father or you know, what you've gone through in that area of life or that anger thing. I'd just like you to take time to pray that through. And, and, and God's saying, we're just, we're just rearranging things at the moment and I'm going to get you to walk even more like Jesus as a result. And, and that's how it is. It doesn't always all at once. It really isn't. As you walk in the Spirit and follow after the Spirit, you will be changed from the inside out. So true wisdom is in Christ. He becomes our wisdom. 
This is the last scripture I want to read, but I just love the Bible, so you can't help it. No apologies. Let's put up the last couple. Let's put up 1 Corinthians 1. Look at this. This is the sort of bit we're ending on, really, in these last couple of minutes. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. This is written to believers, to Christians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. All of us fall a long way short of the human potential that Solomon had, the wisdom Solomon had, and certainly the wealth Solomon had. But all of us in Christ can be in a better position than Solomon was ever in and can actually be wiser than Solomon. The least wise person in this room can be wiser than Solomon in Christ Jesus. And I mean it. And I do not mean it arrogantly. I mean it in awe of what Jesus has done. You do not have to be the foolish man Solomon became. More foolish because he knew better than what he was doing. You can be someone who follows after Jesus. And I'd just like to say that he will cause you to be very wise. He will cause you to walk with godly wisdom in this world. Now, it won't always accord with worldly wisdom, but it will be the right way to live. And it will accord with much that's in the Bible. You can pick up things Solomon wrote, and you can walk in them in a way Solomon never did. Because you're in Christ, and he is in you. You won't be boasting about yourself, saying, I'm cleverer than Solomon. He's a bit of a wally, really. Come on, can manage it. You're not doing that. You're boasting in Jesus. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. Boasting in God. I want to say to you that I never, ever cease being amazed at this. I make no apology. I think I've mentioned it many times before. I am so privileged for living AD after Jesus. After Jesus came, died, and rose again. You know, we are so privileged. You think, why am I living that? Why have I got all these... Be- why I know- uh, uh, It's wonderful to live in the gospel age, in the new covenant. Uh, you can receive... This list goes on. You can receive total forgiveness for your sins. You can be justified before the living God. That means just as if you'd never sinned. That means righteous before the holy God. You can have peace with God, free from condemnation. You're born of the Spirit, can walk in the Spirit. You have the gifts of the Spirit. You can operate in them, men and women, rich and poor. You have free access to the Heavenly Father anytime, 24-7. You can boldly come to your Heavenly Father through the new and living way Jesus opened up for you. You have a new heart and a new spirit. You are a new creation. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can walk in the Holy Spirit. You can be changed to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You have eternal life. It starts now 
will never be broken. And you have the mind of Christ. What? That's not bad, is it? I am delighted. I am so grateful for Jesus. Who he is, what he's done. The least in his kingdom is greater than Solomon.